0: Welcome to episode 249 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist, Markham Hislop. Canada's natural gas industry has been clamoring for years to expand LNG production on the country's West Coast. Aside from the soon-to-be-completed $40 billion LNG Canada and a few small projects, none of the many proposed plants have attracted a final investment decision. Proponents blame the Canadian government. But even a casual review of natural gas and LNG demand forecasts suggests another reason. Global gas demand is likely to peak by 2030 at the latest and begin to decline sometime in the early 2030s. This would suggest markets are on the verge of a massive LNG oversupply. Big exporters like the USA, Australia, and Qatar may be stuck with stranded assets. To help me better understand the future of LNG, I'm joined by Anne Sophie Corbo, a global research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. Her CV is lengthy and impressive, including a stint as head of gas analysis at Supermajor BP. So, welcome to the interview, Anne
1: Sophie. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Let's just start with the big picture. Give me your take on gas demand out to the end of the of the decade and also LNG supply and demand if you will.
1: Of course. So first of all, I mean, there are big disagreements on uh, what is going to happen to natural gas demand. I mean, some people, as you mentioned, see that peaking by the end of the decade, Others see that it's going to continue to grow, um, likely up to 2050. Uh, The big difference between all these scenarios is uh, whether these scenarios are in line with uh, the net zero commitments. Basically, the higher your climate commitments are, usually the lower your gas demand. Now, compared to that, uh, we are going to experience a huge wave of LNG liquefaction plants because right now we have 280 billion cubic meters of LNG export capacity under construction, including, for example, LNG Canada, but a lot of projects in the US and in Qatar. And that's quite significant. Global LNG trade is 540 billion cubic meters, to give you an idea. So basically expanded by 50%, roughly. By 2028, when all these plants are going to be operational, so we are heading for a lot of gas coming to the market.
0: Will there be enough demand? And um, the IEA has been uh, uh, revising its forecast downward for a number of years now. But I saw, I, I saw a, a quote from an SMP Global. Uh, And I'm just looking for it now. There. Okay, so the quote is basically that demand will increase to meet supply. And that seems like an odd uh, argument to me. But what do I know about global demand? what, What do you think of that?
1: So of course, we have totally different arguments. What you need to understand is that the IEA is looking at scenarios. And in particular, the reason why some of the scenarios are so low is because they are meeting a certain commitment in terms of reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I suspect that what the Platt scenario is doing is basically not really looking at the greenhouse gas emissions, but looking at the basic fundamentals of supply and demand for natural gas. And in particular, they, I'm sure, assume that if you have a lot of supply coming to the market, then prices are going to drop. And this is going to potentially interest a lot of people in increasing their gas demand as suddenly natural gas is becoming, in particular, LNG, is becoming more affordable. And let's remember that over the past two years, LNG has not been affordable, in particular for developing countries in Asia. The, um, I'm looking at the
0: IEA scenarios now. So the steps scenario, which kind of is their business as usual, uh, shows that the supply will continue increasing out to 2050, but uh, demand begins to decline around 2035. And the APS, so the, the announced policies scenario shows uh, uh, demand peaking in 2030 and then declining. And then of course, net zero. Uh, scenario is is much more aggressive on the uh, the decline side my general take on the iea's forecast or the scenarios is the aps is is the most likely uh you know for energy primary primary energy in general what what would be your take on that when it comes to gas demand and lng supply?
1: Well, first of all, I would like to say that, you know, everybody has been absolutely stunned by what happened uh, in Europe, and in particular by the fact that suddenly uh, we have seen a big decline in Russian pipeline gas supply, which has incentivized a big increase in terms of LNG imports. And for everybody around the world, in particular LNG exporters, they thought, oh, there is a new market opening up. That... However, might be a little bit misleading because uh, the EU has not completely abandoned its trajectory in terms of reducing gas demand, and eventually these energy imports are going to come down. Of course, the big question mark is how much in line is the EU with its climate objectives, and what is going to be the impact on natural gas demand? But there is definitely a downward trajectory in terms of gas demand, and therefore, eventually, in terms of energy imports. Now, the big market for LNG has always been Asia. And despite the increased interest in Europe, this is also where the action is going to be. Historically, the interest was in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, the historical but also mature LNG market. Now it's shifting towards China, India, and all the Southeast Asian LNG importing countries and this is where basically the big question mark is how much is demand going to increase in these countries and there is another question mark which is can LNG displace coal in particular in the power generation sector because the kind of idea that the gas industry is trying to propose is that natural gas is much better in terms of CO2 emissions than coal. So if we actually push natural gas in the power sector, then this is going to decrease CO2 emissions, which is correct if you are only looking at CO2. You need also to take into account the methane emissions. But from a pure pricing point of view, there is a little problem, which is that LNG tends to be uh, a little bit more expensive because you need to liquefy it, you need to ship it across the oceans, etc. And coal, where well, sometimes for some countries, is actually security of supply thing, you know, look at China, for example, if they have a problem with natural gas imports, they are going to increase coal, and many countries might actually do the same, but also very simply, LNG might not be cheap enough to displace existing coal-fired plants. So the big question is how do we square the circle, and how do we basically uh, push this LNG in order to displace coal, and is it actually achievable at all? Additionally, what the gas industry also needs to make sure is that, the LNG is much cleaner and reduce methane emission and makes the LNG much cleaner as a lower environmental footprint. That's very important.
0: How important is low carbon intensity LNG in the market going forward? And I asked this question because this is a big issue for Canada. Uh, the Canadian government and the, the three provincial governments in which gas production takes place have have uh, initially had a goal of reducing methane emissions by 45% by, by 2030. Uh, the federal government has now increased that to 75%, and there's some pushback, but you know the industry has always said that it's on board with with cutting methane emissions, and the of course now we, we we're seeing studies that show that methane emissions have been underestimated by one and a half to two times. So this it gets to be a bit murky, but I think the general point here is that the industry is saying, look, we're committed to getting uh, some significant methane emission reductions, and on the West Coast we can we can electrify liquef- liquefaction plants. So that we can get as we can make LNG as clean as it's possible to make it, and will that have a premium in a uh, a price premium in the market that would advantage Canadian LNG?
1: Where With- cleaner LNG will have a premium or whether the um, dirty LNG will be at a discount, that is still a question mark. But for sure, I am pretty sure that uh, you know it's going to be uh, priced differently, especially for the markets which have said very clearly that they are going to look at, at the environmental footprint, the carbon footprint of LNG. And one of these key markets is the European Union, which right now is a relatively significant market for LNG, and the European Union has uh, passed new EU methane rules at the end of uh, 2023, and they are going to come progressively uh, in place uh, in later this decade. But they will put an additional focus on the environmental footprint of LNG. So that's something that any LNG exporter in the world has to take into account. Uh, the rules still need to be defined, but I think you know. The, the target from the European Union is to say to the different LNG exporters and also pipeline exporters, look, guys, I mean, you know, methane emissions are very, very important. Uh, this is a shortcut in order to rapidly actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions, including methane and CO2 and other greenhouse gases. So we need to really focus on that and we need to go very fast. And I mean... You know, the gas industry even recognises that this is something that they can do, and sometimes they can do at zero cost, so that's perfectly achievable. Now in terms of doing that, you have different things. You know, you have basically what is happening before the liquefaction plant, so all the methane emissions and the over emissions which are going to be associated with upstream gas, then pipeline gas, which is going to link your field to the LNG plant, and then what is going on at the LNG liquefaction plant. So methane emissions, quite a lot is happening at the upstream level. However, at the liquefaction level, what you can do, and this is what you were referring to, is trying to power plants with something which is clean. So you can use clean electricity, hydroelectricity, renewable electricity, nuclear electricity, or you can use gas, but then capture the CO2 in order to lower your environmental footprint. So these are the different ways to basically clean up your LNG liquefaction plant.
0: Well, let's talk about Europe because you, you mentioned that and uh of course Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022 Russia cut off gas uh exports to Europe and it was 40 percent of European gas uh later that that year and the European Union responded with r e uh Europe we got the repower re re I, anyway you you know what I'm talking about there was a our Keep repower that EU. That's what it was. <laughs> there we go. So, sorry for listeners. I apologize for stumbling over my tongue. It's early and on the west coast of Canada. What can I tell you? So anyway, the 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 goal of repower EU uh, was to or is to uh, first of all energy efficiency. So let's let's cut down. We'll make we'll switch to more efficient uh, uh, technologies and and cut our, our the amount of total energy we use. Uh, source other supply so they want to replace russian gas in the short term and then a massive build out accelerate their build out of renewables again to replace gas in the in the power sector and my understanding is that they're they've actually been uh, fairly successful thus far and that would suggest that europe's Reliance on LNG will decline over time, maybe starting in the late 2020s. What's your take on that?
1: So, first of all, let me uh, tell you something that maybe you don't know, and maybe the listeners don't know, but Europe is still importing Russian gas and Russian LNG, by the way. (laughs) So, uh, funny enough, uh, there is still Russian pipeline gas, which is right now arriving to Europe and transiting through Ukraine. So there are still two pathways, one through Ukraine and one through an undersea pipeline, which is arriving to Turkey and then going into the EU market. And on top of that, we are also importing Russian energy. So Europe is not completely free of Russian gas. That's the first thing. And then you are correct. uh, Indeed, uh, Europe has this target of, well, first of all, trying to get rid of Russian fossil fuels. And they have been relatively successful because, Still, I mean, the amount of Russian gas that we are importing now is much, much lower than what we used to import uh, two years ago. Uh, For example, in terms of pipeline gas, which is the one which has really dropped, uh, 2021, about 140. 2023, about 27 billion cubic meters. So that's quite a significant drop. Second thing, indeed, was the EU has tried to diversify in terms of gas supplies. So the main answer has been, LNG, including US LNG, as well as trying to talk to the different suppliers around uh, the EU, Norway, Azerbaijan, uh, North Africa, but really the key answer in terms of volumes has been with LNG. Now, there is a second part, which is the demand side, and this is one of the most important things. Uh, Yes, the EU has been relatively successful in terms of decreasing demand. A little bit in 2022 was a mix of luck with relatively warm weather and also gas demand destruction in the industrial sector. So you can say that roughly about two-thirds of the decrease of gas demand in Europe in 2022 has been because of luck at industrial gas demand destruction. But still we can see that now uh, This demand decrease in 2023 is continuing because we have increasing renewable and also because nuclear and hydro have, you know, the drop was quite significant in 2022, so they have stabilized and they have somehow come back a little bit. So because of renewable growth, you can expect that there is going to be a downward trajectory progressively in Europe. It's not only going to be for gas, it's going to be for coal as well. Uh, Residential demand, also downward trajectory, what has been quite remarkable is how people have reduced their demand, either because the costs were too high. So basically, you know, you have to choose and you have to reduce your demand because you cannot pay your bill. But also because people have realized, I was fine with 21 degrees Celsius. I am fine with 19 degrees Celsius, honestly. And then the third part is really what is going to happen with industrial gas demand which has not recovered despite lower gas prices for many reasons. And that is a key question mark. Is it going to recover when prices come down or is it something that we see as a structural trend, which is going to be potentially aggravated by the fact that there is this strategy of decarbonization in the industry in particular with hydrogen and electrification?
0: Well, let's talk about Asia for a bit and uh, we'll start with China. Uh, i'm looking at opec's uh, gas demand not lng but gas uh, and you made the the point earlier that the, the the two are not linked they're not the same but um opec out from 2022 to 2020 uh, 2045 is forecasting that gas demand will increase almost double goes up about 80% and uh LNG imports, I think are expected to to increase. Now, OPEC just got the their uh crude oil forecast incredibly wrong. Uh they they forecast China uh to the uh, oil uh consumption in China to increase by 4 million barrels a day by 2045 and Sinopec just came out in late December and said no demand is could peak as, as early as 2026 no later than 2030 so already i'm i'm very skeptical of of opec's uh, view of of uh, demand forecasts uh, for uh, for oil and gas and then coupled with that is china's incredible rollout of wind and solar particularly solar you know the last year they they installed 50% of all of all renewables in the world And they're going to continue on that pace, in part because they have so much spare capacity in their solar uh, module uh, manufacturing sector. Uh, And it looks like they're positioning coal to be kind of the backup, to be the firm dispatchable power that they can call on when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. I don't see a big role for gas in the Chinese power sector. Uh, And so I'm just interested in your views on
1: that. That's actually a relatively accurate assessment because the role of natural gas in the Chinese power sector is not that big. Uh, Also simply because natural gas is not particularly competitive. That's as simple as that. So if you are looking at the majority of gas demand in China, it's largely in the residential and also industrial sector. And yes, in volume terms, of course, uh, natural gas demand in the power sector is large. But when you are looking at the percentage of natural gas in the total power generation is relatively small, it's a few percentage. And you are correct. Uh, Solar, wind, but also nuclear, nuclear generation are growing very fast in China. That's definitely something which is happening as we speak. And the targets that they were having especially in renewables, seem to be exceeded already. So, you know, there is actually a relatively good story. What we need to be cautious about, however, is that climate change has had an impact on China, in particular on hydro generation, which was hit during the first part of last year, particularly hit. So this is where you need to take everything into account. Now, On uh, natural gas and LNG, I don't think the Chinese are as committed as they were before in terms of growing gas demand, because the big growth that we have observed over the past few years was really driven by residential and industrial. So the switch from coal to gas. Based on the economics and also based on security of supply, it's still a question mark whether an additional substantial growth is going to happen or not. But I have doubt that there is still going to be some growth. So what happened on Chinese LNG has been truly remarkable because when you are looking at how much LNG was contracted by... Chinese companies, you could see that there was some sort of a baller hat profile. It will increase slowly, and then it will be flat, and then it will eventually decline. But Chinese LNG companies, or Chinese gas companies in general, have been contracting so much LNG over the past two years But now you have some sort of picky hat, which is increasing very fast between now and 2030, and then decreasing afterwards. And when I'm talking about Chinese companies, I'm not only talking about the three big NOCs. I'm talking also about the flurry of smaller gas companies, which you may say, at the Chinese level, are relatively small. But when you are looking at the demand profile, they are actually quite significant. And suddenly, these companies are becoming interesting. And these companies are also interested in getting access to LNG. Because on the Chinese market, there has been growth, but there has also been liberalization. So have they the better access to the energy regasification terminals and the pipeline? So altogether, suddenly, we are seeing China being very active on the global energy market. And the real question mark is... What is China going to do with all that gas? Are they going to consume that gas or are they going to more and more be active on the global energy market and trade that energy? And believe me, I mean, if there is one thing which is complicated beyond understanding the gas profile of China, this is understanding what is going to meet that demand because China is a large gas producer, very large gas producer. It's importing natural gas from Russia by pipeline. From Central Asia and LNG and how everything competes, that is probably the most interesting question of the century.
0: So is it fair to say then that that's an open question? We don't we don't really have a good handle yet on the role that, that China will play. It could consume that LNG or it could it could resell it. We don't know what what they're going to do.
1: Well, there is, for example, a very small 50 billion cubic meters uncertainty with. Russian
0: gas. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Um, what about the rest of Asia? This is uh, seen to be the 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 growing market, but it's also a market where that seems to be adopting renewables at a significant pace. Uh, and so what would be uh, what's your take on the rest of you know other Asia uh, regions of Asia? It's a very
1: interesting question too, because India, for example, has been saying for years, we want to have 15% of natural gas in our primary energy, except that they are very far, far, far away from that. And you have renewables, which are going very fast. You have an uncertainty about nuclear. So whether natural gas is going to reach that level, knowing that the Indian gas market is particularly price sensitive, that's an open question mark. And in the rest of Asia, if you exclude Singapore, most markets are also extremely price sensitive. And there is a particularly tough competition between natural gas, renewable, and coal in the power generation sector. So yes, there is potential for growth, especially for LNG in the countries like Thailand, Bangladesh, Pakistan, which have an existing gas demand base, but are going to see their domestic gas production reduced over time. So this is where LNG Imports yeah. make you, even if gas demand at the
0: end of the day doesn't grow at much. I'm looking at, again at OPEC's forecasts. And uh, for the Americas, Europe, and Asia Pacific, um, they see gas demand as pretty much flat uh, out to 2045. The growth that they see is in China, India, uh, the OPEC countries, and uh the biggest one is other developing countries, so probably some of the ones that you just mentioned, and that would be far and away the, the biggest source of of growth. Um, but in listening to your answers, my takeaway is the lack of certainty. This is such a fluid, dynamic situation that it could go, the IEA could be right, and we could see a, a, a peak and then a, a significant decline. Or the o- OPEC could be right and and we see significant growth. Um, but the if investors that are making these final investment decisions, they don't like uncertainty. and I it's is it would it be fair to say that this level of uncertainty is preventing in to some extent the final investment decisions being made on even more LNG supply.
1: Yes, I mean, this is uh, certainly correct because, I mean, when you have an LNG project, usually you need long-term contracts. And this is, you know, what the investors will want to have. The only exception to that story is Qatar, which has just decided to go and move forward with this LNG plan, which is, by the way, quite sizable. And at, at the very beginning, no contract attached. But now they are signing the long-term contracts, and you have probably heard about uh, the gigantic 4 million ton over 27 years contract that they have signed with two Chinese companies. But they are the exception. Everybody else needs financing, needs to go to the bank and say, here, this is my plant, and by the way, I have all these people who have signed long-term contracts, they are uh, AAA, whatever, of course, AAA is the best, and uh, the bank is happy.
0: I, I appreciate the um, the fact that you're you know this the future is is very cloudy. Uh, it seems more so than in some other forms of energy when it comes to LNG. But can you give us your best guess at what's going to happen over the next ten to twenty years? Are we going to see expansion? Are we going to see peak and contraction? Um, what would you what what what's your uh, what's your view?
1: personal view is that at some point natural gas demand is going to peak and so will lng and i think that will happen at some point in the 2030s uh, simply because you know if you want natural gas and I, i am trying to be like probably not believing in net zero because, I mean, net zero seems to be quite difficult to achieve, but at least in a world where we are trying as best as we can to reduce greenhouse gas emission. And the problem for natural gas is that you need to do two things, reduce methane emissions and also reduce CO2. And in order to reduce the CO2, well, you need to develop CCS very fast and we are not even there. So I think eventually natural gas is going to come down progressively also because there is such an important growth in terms of renewable and there is also more efficiency in general. So there will be this kind of, you know, slowing down and then eventually decline. That's my take on this, but you know, like anybody else, I might be wrong.
0: <laughs> Indeed, the uh, the bane of forecasters everywhere, I might be wrong. Um, what about some of the sectors? Now, uh, gas is used for residential heat, industrial heat. It's used in the power sector. Uh, it's used as feedstock in uh, in, in petrochemicals. Uh, it has a, a variety of different uh, uses. Is there uh, likely to be a decline in some areas? Like I could see the power sector. Renewables... We keep underestimating the adoption of renewables, particularly uh, in uh, some of the bigger markets, and and in particular in, in China. Uh, so we I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see more gas being squeezed out of the, the power sector sooner but there are these other, you know, we might see petrochemicals increase because of the rise in population and and the emergence of uh, of uh, middle class in some of the, you know, in, in the developing economies. So where where do you think are, are there any trends that we should be aware of in the sectors that use natural gas?
1: Let's start with uh, residential and commercial. I mean, mostly uh, where we use gas for heating. And I think, you know, uh, based on energy efficiency improvements and also based on the fact that more and more people are uh, moving towards heat pumps, I mean, the use of natural gas is very likely to come down in those areas. I, you know, uh, we have just installed a heat pump. It's fantastic. I mean, in terms of electricity consumption, it's very low. So quite happy with that. And and of course, it's an upfront investment, but it does have an impact. And this is something that in the European Union, for example, we are pushing particularly. But I do expect that eventually this is going to spread well over the world. So that's one thing. In the industry sector, if you are thinking in terms of decarbonization strategy. Everything which is low to medium temperature heat can be pretty much electrified. So, you know, the only question mark is about the very high temperature. And this is where people are exploring already hydrogen. So you may have here a competition between natural gas and some cases as well, coal, and hydrogen on the other side. And then in the power generation, uh, you are correct. I mean, uh, there is uh, this competition coming more and more from renewable, especially in markets uh, where basically power demand is not growing so fast. You know, there is, this is the, the whole question, how fast is your power demand growing compared to the renewable? Because in some parts it may very well be that, you know, you still have a developing country and power demand is growing much faster than renewable can catch up with. So this is where, you know, potentially you still need natural gas. And you still need also natural gas because it provides flexibility. So the the flexibility, the storage part, this is something that for the moment natural gas is quite useful because we have not completely squared the whole picture. You know, what is going to come from the demand side? What is going to come from different possibilities in terms of storage, whether we're talking about uh, hydro storage, whether we're talking about the batteries, etc. So the picture is still very fluid, but I think eventually it's going to come down, but not at the same pace and not everywhere the same. So you really need to look at developed countries, developing countries, where they are right now, whether they're growing fast, whether they have a lot of coal, to really try to understand how gas can play a role.
0: I'd like to get your view on uh, another issue, because uh, anybody who's in the forecasting business uh, understands that it's all about assumptions. And different forecasters will have different assumptions. And one of the uh, assumptions that OPEC makes very explicitly uh, is that in the uh, developing countries, non-OECD, as they say, uh, the appetite for climate policy and for the costs of subsidizing uh, clean energy technologies is waning. And they think that over time, uh, that, in fact, will lead to an increase in non-OECD. OECD countries in demand for oil and gas. That's a big part of their uh, uh, of their uh, uh, analysis uh, for uh, growing demand out, out to 20, 2045. And OECD countries like Europe and and North America and Canada, uh, U.S. Um, they have the have the financial wherewithal to adopt renewables and to displace uh, oil and gas. And so, on balance the demand uh, in the non-OECD countries exceeds the decline in the OECD countries. That, that basically, that's, that's a, a, a pretty concise summary of, of what OPEC thinks. Um, what do you think about that?
1: I would say that, first of all, you know, renewable growth in countries such as China, India, or even Vietnam, solar energy, for example, has been quite remarkable, and they are all developing countries Now where I would agree with them is that right now we do have a big problem which is that the cost of raw material has increased. the cost of financing has increased and this is making solar and wind less competitive compared to what it was before. So we have had this very nice declining trend over the past decade past decades actually and now it has come to a halt. And we need to get it, you know, going downward again. And I think where there is a big role for developed countries to play to help developing countries, this is in terms of making financing more affordable. Because for developing countries, This is a double whammy. I mean, not only, uh, you know, they are struggling from a financial point of view, but on top of that, when they are coming with a nice project, they are being told that they have to pay double rates compared to um, a country like uh, France or the US or whatever. So this is a little bit unfair. So there is definitely a big role to play in terms of making financing more affordable for these countries. Because, I mean, look at a region like Africa. I mean, don't tell me that you know they don't have a fantastic solar potential. They do. They absolutely do. So I, I would say that I, not, I'm not fully in agreement with OPEC. I think they are right in identifying some of the issues. I don't think the answer to this issue is completely accurate.
0: So they they might be overstating the case, even though some of their general observations are correct. They're they're a little too aggressive on the on the positive side for oil and gas. Uh, is that would be a good summary of your. Of your view?
1: Obviously, I mean, you know, we are talking about OPEC, so it would be very difficult for them to be (laughs) negative about oil and gas developments. (laughs) That would be quite curious, actually.
0: Wouldn't it, wouldn't it, though? Uh, So, um, fair uh, fair enough. Now, um, one of the things, you know, you were talking about financing, and I was looking uh, over IEA's new, uh, it was released last week, their uh, Renewables 2023 report. And one of the things that's striking is that when the, uh, thanks to the uh, energy security issue and inflation and then central banks raising uh, interest rates, and some of them were quite startling up to 14%, 12%, which you could see that, that sort of supports your argument for the added cost for renewal. China's rates didn't go up at all. In fact, they dropped over that. They, they stayed down around uh, three or four percent. And you can see then why that would be a huge advantage for China in terms of its rollout of, of clean energy uh, technologies. Um, but my understanding is, and, and this is not something I pay a, a lot of attention to, uh, so it's a kind of in the, picked it up by osmosis, but you, over the next year or two, interest rates are supposed to come down. We're supposed to get back to some lower rates anyway, and one would think then that that would then uh, reignite the the rapid adoption of wind and solar uh, in other markets. And then, and I guess we're just laying complexity on top of complexity here, and, with, and which which supports your argument for for uncertainty. We just don't know which way it's going to uh, going to move.
1: Yes, but I think, I mean, there is definitely one trajectory which is quite certain. This is that uh, solar and wind are going to go. I mean, you know, there is no stop to that. But the question is at which rate? And is that rate going to far exceed the growth in power demand, which is also accelerated by all these strategies about electrification? Because electrification is one of the key pillars when you are talking about decarbonization. So there is this kind of imbalance. But really, I think renewable are going to grow. And, and this is something which is not going to stop. And this is pretty much, you know, the kind of analysis that the IA came up with uh, in the latest uh, renewable outlook.
0: I, I'm curious about your views on Canadian LNG prospects, because I, I mean, we've got, there's the big one, $40 billion uh, for LNG Canada is a very, very large project. And their their gas feedstock is uh, is very low cost. Uh, so the economics there appear, but still they're requiring some subsidies from uh, around uh, around electricity for the for the liquefaction plant. So but that's under construction. It'll be ready a year or two and it'll it'll be online. But I've interviewed some other analysts who argue that the, the capital costs, on the west coast of BC, uh, are twice as much as in the US Gulf Coast, simply because it's it's scale. The the US Gulf, you know, Texas, Louisiana, they have really well developed uh, petrochemical and and LNG facilities, and so. But the west coast of Canada, the advantage there is cooler temperatures, so your liquefaction is much more efficient and and lower cost, and so the argument is, does the 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 lower operating costs on the west coast offset the higher capital costs advantage that you would see in the us gulf coast and i just wonder if you had an opinion on that and and the general competitiveness of likely competitiveness of can, canadian lng
1: so, you know, when I started looking at Canadian LNG, it was more than 10 years ago when I was an analyst at the IA, And I was observing, you know, side to side what was going on in the US and what was going on uh, in Canada. And by 2014, when I was about to leave the IAEA, I had come to the conclusion that uh, the US was very well engaged in the LNG uh, history and that uh, Canada totally missed the boat. Because of, you know, too many complexities, too much regulation, trying to basically argue and decide about linking the upstream development to the pipeline which was going to go through certain zones, etc., and building uh, LNG liquefaction terminals. I mean, the US at that time had one advantage, which is that they were already having the infrastructure in place because they had existing LNG import terminals. But then where we converted into LNG export terminals but the pipeline, the jetties, the storage units, etc. they were already there. So the, that's why, you know, the US moved faster because a lot of the infrastructure was already there. Now, the thing is that, as we said, there is quite a lot already under construction. And it seems that, you know, the opportunity to build even more is going to be decided on you know, at what price can you sell your LNG? Under which conditions? Because some people may be more interested in all indexation, some other people may be more interested in Henry Hub or whatever over indexation. Whether you trust the companies behind the project. Whether, you know, this is an expansion of LNG projects, an existing one, which is the case for many LNG uh, projects which are currently under consideration in the United States. So I think this is why, you know, the Canadian projects have been struggling so much. And when you look at the historical list of all these uh, LNG projects in Canada, I mean, there have been a lot. I mean, you know, Rupert LNG, Goldboro LNG, etc. A lot have been simply cancelled.
0: Right. I think there were 24 projects uh, that had been uh, tentatively approved or had received uh, federal government approval at some point. One of the arguments that's often made by uh, pro-LNG folks in Canada is that the only thing standing in the way of an expansion of the Canadian LNG industry is federal government regulation. And My personal feeling is that they uh, are overstating that case, uh, that there are far too many other variables that, and particularly this market uncertainty, demand uncertainty going forward. Uh, But I'd like to get your view on, uh, if you have one, on the role, the significance of federal government regulation as an impediment to the further expansion of Canadian LNG.
1: So I'm not so familiar with, uh, you know, how the Canadian LNG framework and the regulatory framework works. But I mean, for me, well, yes, of course, you need to have uh, your uh, installation approved by whatever uh, competent authority exists. But at the end of the day, what is also crucial is that uh, your project must be convincing for the potential off-takers, Because you might have um, the, all the regulatory approvals that uh, you want, if you are not selling your energy, which has been the problem for many of the projects that we have been talking about, you're not going anywhere. And that has been the problem for Canadian LNG for the past uh, decade or so.
0: So the problem is we're just not, at, the customers are not entering into contracts.
1: Yes, exactly. I, or, or there are not enough customers because I know, you know, some uh, LNG facilities which have now been canceled had one LNG contract, but that was not enough. So... If you don't have enough LNG customers, then you are not going to have a convincing case in front of the bank. And therefore, you're not going to to get your financing. And therefore, you are not going to take FID because unless you are a very big company and you have a lot of cash, which doesn't happen very often, uh, you are not going to take FID on a new project, especially if the investors are scrutinizing whatever you are doing and telling you, what are you doing, uh, net zero commitments, how is that in line, et cetera. So that doesn't work.
0: Fair enough. Um, there is a lot of talk. And in fact, uh, I know some analysts were expecting an announcement by the LNG principals uh, for a final investment decision on phase two of LNG Canada, uh, which would still be a very significant increase in, uh, in capacity. And just wondering if you have any insights there
1: don't have any insight. I think you know uh, if LNG Canada has a substantial amount of LNG contracts or if uh, the project sponsor is willing uh, to contract uh, LNG for itself and then you know plays the role up a aggregator, then it may move forward. but uh, as again, I mean, you know the market will decide
0: <laughs> as it always does. indeed. so if I let's wrap up our conversation this way, Anne Sophie. Um, my take on th- this excellent uh, conversation and, and your insights into global uh, LNG capacity, uh, supply and demand, uh, is that we probably have about a decade, uh, roughly, r- roughly a decade where we're going to see growth in, in LNG demand. Um, then we'll probably hit a peak, maybe mid-2030s, begin to see a decline but these are 20, 30, 40 uh, year uh, investments. They're assets that that have to perform. So if I'm looking out at, if I'm an investor or a company that's looking at building a new plant and I'm saying, okay, well, I've got 10 10 good years of of market growth, but i have to pay out this asset over 20 years, maybe 30 years, that's not a a great argument uh, for green lighting a, a new plant and especially one where maybe the economics aren't are not as good as they are in other places uh and and there are other impediments like maybe you know more regulation relative to to others and so is that a a reasonable way to to, to look at you know the difficulties that LNG is having
1: in Canada so something that you have to take into account is that when you are looking at the next 20 25 years um the current LNG exports are not going to stay where they are. I mean, some plants are just going to come at the end of their life, and there is no more gas to feed into that plant, so that plant is going to disappear. Very difficult to say which ones. I mean. Look at Egypt, for example. You know, uh, it has been moving from an exporter to being an importer, and then it was getting uh, gas from Israel, and now, well, there is some uncertainty about the future of Egyptian energy. So that's one example. Uh, look at Yemen. I mean, uh, you know, the plant started 2009, 2010, and then stopped a few years later because the war started. Difficult to predict as well. Uh, Indonesia, many plants have stopped. Trinidad. Trinidad, the the, the LNG exports have been dwindling, but there is Venezuela next door. So will there be an agreement between Venezuela and Trinidad? And then suddenly you have uh, LNG exports from Trinidad coming back to the top. Quite a lot of uncertainty, but it's very important to keep in mind that the picture is probably going to, to show a decline of existing LNG exports. And then I think you know what is also going to determine uh, you know the relative competitiveness of these different LNG exports is going to be the price and the condition under which they are sold, but also increasingly their green credentials. And we are coming back to you know to this question about having low methane emissions and having uh, a low um, uh, greenhouse gas emission attached to the, the the whole LNG value chain. And I think this is what, in my opinion, is going to eventually make a difference between all these different. LNG assets.
0: Well, and Sophie, this has been fascinating. I'm I'm going to flatter myself and say that I I know a lot more about the global LNG uh, industry than I did before we started this conversation. Thank you very much for this. Really appreciate your insights.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.